deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We all are meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Well, that is a quote from Marianne Williamson um, out of Stephen Pressfield's book, Do the Work. And welcome to episode four of the Goodreads podcast. Um, I love to read and I love to share what I'm reading and how it's helping me. And I hope that in sharing, it will help you too also. Well, if you've been listening in, this is our third book of Stephen Pressfield out of four episodes. And I began with The War of Art, which is one of my all-time favorite books. And then last week, we looked at the follow-up to that book. And then today, this is the last one in the trilogy called Do the Work. So you're going to hear some similar themes and similar ideas. And after this week, I'll move on from Stephen Pressfield, at least for the time being. He does have some other books I'd like to cover, but I'll make sure to cover some other people um, before I come back to him. Uh, But Do the Work is the last one, like I said, in this trilogy um, of... Uh, the war of art. And so he begins by talking more about resistance, because if you remember, the biggest thing that he says we all face is that internal resistance, this unstoppable force that is never satisfied, that is always trying to sabotage our potential. And he just put some reminders in there. I love this quote. This was in the war of art as well, but he says the rule of thumb, the more important a call or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel toward pursuing it. I cannot hear that enough, um, and maybe you can't either, that the more we fight something is sometimes an indicator of how important it is that we do that. And if you ever notice, you rarely ever fight the unhealthy things in your life, right? It's just so easy to slide into those. It's always the habits, it's always the decisions, it's always a course of actions that will actually create positive and healthy growth in our lives that we fight the most. Um, And again, I just find that so insightful and helpful. And he goes on and he he talks about, now this book is really aimed about when you decide to fight resistance and to begin to live out the life that you were called to do, that you were uniquely equipped to do, um, then how do you begin to just do the work? And what does that look like to really engage in the work? And so this is kind of meant for those who are on the journey. So the first couple books, um, The War of Art, Turning Pro was last week's. They were kind of meant to help you begin that journey. And now this is about continuing on that journey. So one of the things he says here is stay stupid. He says the three dumbest guys I can think of, Charles Lindbergh, Steve Jobs, Winston Churchill. 
Why? Because any smart person who understood how impossibly arduous were the tasks they had set before themselves would have pulled the plug before he even began. Ignorance and arrogance are the artists and entrepreneurs' indispensable allies. She must be clueless enough to have no idea how difficult her enterprise is going to be and cocky enough to believe she can pull it off anyway. It says, don't think, act. We can always revise and revisit once we've acted, but we can accomplish nothing until we act. And I thought that those ideas are very counterintuitive, and he's being, I think, a bit facetious in how he's saying it, but this whole concept of ignorance and arrogance. So Steve Jobs was notoriously famous for just demanding that technology do certain things, and and all the actual experts around him would push back and say, Steve, there's no way that we can get the iPhone to do this or for the software to operate in this way. And he was just irrationally stubborn about his vision. And guess what? It turned out it wasn't impossible. That It could be done. And the great breakthroughs were because of his dogged determination. And Pressfield's point is, is that that irrational stubbornness in us and that confidence when all the experts are saying it can't be done for you to believe it can be done, I can take this step with my life. I can change careers. I can overcome this addiction, this habit, even though no one else believes I can. Uh, that internal fortitude is a indispensable quality to fighting resistance and to living the life that we were called to. Uh, But I love this line. I want to read it to you one more time. He says, uh, we can always revise and revisit once we've acted. We can accomplish nothing until we act. Don't wait for the perfect plan. Don't wait for for the perfect moment to begin the change you need to take, to to take the big step you need to take, right? There's never going to be the right time. All our ducks are never going to be in a row. And I'm a person that loves to have my ducks in the row. But what I realize he's saying and what I think is so true is that if, if we demand that, we will never really act. And only once we act can a habit or a dream or a plan actually be revised and made better because there's so much that you don't know until you actually begin. He says, be stubborn. Once we commit to action, the worst thing we can do is stop. Just keep moving forward. Keep taking action. He goes on along this theme. He says, start before you're ready. Don't prepare. Begin. And listen to this so closely. This is so powerful to me. Remember, our enemy is not lack of preparation. It's not the difficulty of the project or the state of the marketplace or the emptiness of our bank account. Those aren't the actual real enemies that that we face to living the life that God is calling us. He says, no, the enemy is resistance. The enemy is our chattering brain, which if we give it so much as a nanosecond, will start producing excuses, alibis, transparent self-justifications, and a million reasons why we can't, shouldn't, won't do what we need to do. Start before you're ready. I think that is so powerful. I think uh, in my own life, all the the roles that I've had as uh, a leader in the church, um, as a even a, 
uh, role, a uh, leadership in the military. And I've never felt fully prepared to step into those roles. And granted, many times there was a certain uh, naiveness. There, there was maybe a certain overconfidence that said, well, y- you'll figure it out. And by God's grace, we do figure it out. And we do learn and we do grow and we do become more capable in the process. He has a quote from a great philosopher. He says, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius and magic in it. Begin it now. I love that line. Boldness has genius. Just start. What are you thinking about? Stop thinking about it. Start it. What is that thing you need to do? Quit trying to analyze it and should I do it or should I? I mean, I, and I'm talking about healthy things here. But, but whatever is, is on, has been on your mind, is in your heart, just engage in the activity. And he goes on and he, and he gives uh, some more principles around this. And I want to share some with you. He says, number one, stay primitive. The creative act is primitive. Its principles are of birth and genesis. And otherwise, don't overcomplicate things. Number two, he says, swing for the seats. He says, if you and I want to do great stuff, we can't let ourselves work small. A home run swing that results in a strikeout is better than a successful bunt or even a a line drive single. Because those, again, are still ways of avoiding risk. And what we've said through this whole time is that risk is essential to full development. Risk is essential to you and I being able to become everything we were meant to. He says, start playing from power. We can always dial it back later. If we don't swing for the seats from the start, we'll never be able to drive a fastball into the upper deck. And I think this is a great principle when we think about our life. You know, when we think about the vision of, of who we want to be and what we hope God might accomplish through our life, don't start with what's possible in our work. Don't, don't think about what you know can be done. Think about what could be done if everything went perfect, if it all unfolded in your wildest dreams and greatest hopes. That's the goal that you want to have. Sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot because we set the bar so low because it's more comfortable. It's safer. It feels achievable. But what Pressfield will say is that's all kind of part of resistance strategy to to keep you grounded. And what we really have to do is think bigger, think beyond us. And then he spends some time, and and I thought this was really cool. Some of what he says is really focused on the creative endeavors like writing. You know, for me, that translates to writing sermons or getting content out to our church in different ways. Um, But I think it it does apply to other life principles as well. But he met with this, this famous documentary maker. And this documentary maker was giving him advice about screenwriting. And he said, Steve, God made a single sheet of yellow paper exactly the right length to hold the outline of an entire novel. That was a lunch conversation, part of the advice uh, he gave him. And Pressfield was kind of taken back by that. But he said he thought about it. He said he meant don't overthink. Don't overprepare. Don't let research become resistance. Don't spend six months compiling a thousand-page Uh, detailing the emotional matrix and family history of every character in your book. Outline it fast now on instinct and then discipline yourself to boil down your story 
your business idea, the whole thing to a single page. There's power in that clarity and simplicity. And sometimes we get lost in the weeds when we try to make it a 20-page thing. And then he, he talks about some of the greatest works of art and the greatest works of architecture and the simplicity of them. And this kind of really resonated with me because I think a great sermon is very simple too. I think a great sermon isn't ready until you can say it in just one clear sentence. Not two, but just one. And the shorter and the clearer, the better. And much of life is like that. I also aspire and still trying to work through this, but to be able to say sort of the purpose of my life and the goals of my life in one simple, clear sentence, I, I think clarity and simplicity has power. And it also helps to overcome resistance and complacency uh, because clarity can just drive you forward uh, in a different way. He talks more about writing here. He talks about starting at the end. He said, here's a trick that screenwriters use. Work backwards, begin at the finish. And again, this principle is not just about writing. The great Stephen Covey, this incredible leadership guru, one of his seven principles of the highly effective people is begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind work backwards. But what does he mean? He means begin with how you want your life to end up. Start there. That's how we dream. That's how we plan. That's how we eventually create our daily schedule. Because when I think with the end in mind, my whole life is moving towards a purpose, towards a direction uh, that's going to get me to where I ultimately want to be. And yes, is it kind of hard to do that? It, it is. It's not as hard as we make it. Um, you have to sit down with a pen and paper and spend some time in silence and prayer and think about it. But the value of it is so absolutely incredible. So it's helpful in writing, but I think it's also helpful in life. Now, he goes on, and uh, this book is broken up to beginning, middle, and end of Do the Work. So kind of how to get yourself started, what it's like in the middle of it, and how to finish. So now we're entering into the, the middle stage and he's talking a lot about resistance and you know how we're, we're never, even when you begin, you're still gonna have to fight it um, every day and how tricky it can be. Um, he has a, a section in here on how screenwriters pitch uh, to movie producers. And I thought this was kind of interesting. He says, one trick they use is to boil down their presentation to the following. One, a killer opening scene. Two, two major set pieces in the, mil uh, in the middle. Three, a killer climax. And four, a concise statement of the theme. So all the great movies get boiled down to those, those four essentials that get presented, and that's the decision of whether all this money is going to be infused into these projects uh, to get them created. I just find that interesting and interesting about uh, any creative project. Uh, he talks about rules for, for drafts. And again, it's kind of similar to what he's been saying. Don't worry about quality. Act. Don't reflect. Momentum is everything. Go to the end as if the devil himself were breathing down your neck, poking you with his pitchfork, because believe me, he is. Unless you're building a sailboat or the Taj Mahal, I give you a free pass to mess up as much as you like. 
The inner critic, he's not permitted in the building. Set forth without fear, without self-censorship. When you hear that voice in your head, blow it off. The draft is not being graded. There will be no pop quiz. Only one thing matters in this initial draft. Get something done. However flawed or imperfect, you are not allowed to judge yourself. And again, that principle just speaks to me because uh, I even think about that, that principle in like workouts. You know, many days I just, I do not want to work out. And sometimes I'll do a really, really lame workout. You know, it's just, uh, just really lame. I'm not doing anything impressive by any means. And, but you know what? I'll tell myself, I'll be like, but Chet, you won because you just did it. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't great, wasn't impressive. No one would ever look at that and be like, wow. But you, you did it. You got it done. And because you did it, it can be that habit can be improved. And again, just with, with anything in life, there, there's so much self-criticism that we put on ourselves. And what it ends up doing is it strangles us from ever really beginning, from ever really taking the steps. And if we can learn to just put that voice off and just say, you don't get to influence this. You don't get to dictate whether or not I'm going to do it because I can only get better by doing. I can only get better by taking the step. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. Now, he talks about the process as, as we are in the work, and I just thought this was helpful. Um, you know, he says, let's talk about the actual process, the writing, composing, idea generation, business planning, you know, all of that to him is all creative endeavors. It all uh, is applicable to this. He says it progresses in two stages, action and reflection. So I'm going to take action, but then I'm going to reflect. How did it go? Was that, did I accomplish what I hoped to? What did I learn from it? And he says, act, reflect, act, reflect. But then he puts this in there, never act and reflect at the same time. Right, because if, if, if we are always just acting without reflecting, we're going to be very, very inefficient. And chances are we could just spend a tremendous amount of energy and resources in the wrong direction. And so reflection is the way to refine our action. But again, they both have to be at work. And we, we can't spend time trying to do them both at the same time, but we need space uh, to do them separately. He says, uh, just talking about some more idea generation, the answer is always yes. When an idea pops into our head, we think, no, this is too crazy. He said, that's the idea that we want because that might be the place of divine genius in you. The thought that, that stretches us the most many times is the right one. He goes on, he says, in the middle of this battle, just keep working. Stephen King has confessed that he works every day. Fourth of July, his birthday, Christmas. He says, I love that. And again, because you're keeping the momentum going. And that is one of the most important things we can do to keep moving our life forward. Um, so now he transitions to what he calls the belly of the beast. And this is that time where we have begun the work that's part of our unique con. We've battled resistance. We've taken steps forward. 
and and we've made some progress, but now we hit the wall, if you will. I think that that's what marathoners call it. You know, maybe you're at mile 16, like, hey, you've come a long way. You've made a lot of progress. You know, you still got 10 more miles to go. Um, and your body's exhausted and your mind's exhausted. So he calls this the belly of the beast. And uh, so he has some principles for it. He says, principle number one, uh, there is an enemy here. And of course, that enemy is resistance. Principle number two, the enemy is implacable, right? You, he, you can't bargain with them. You can't reason with them. And even in the, the belly of the beast, you've got to remain vigilant. He says, number three, the enemy is inside you. All right, we've talked about this. Number four, the enemy is inside you, but it's not of you. And number five, the real you must duel the resistance you. You are the knight. Resistance is the dragon. And you got to win this fight in the belly of the beast. And then he says this, principle number six, resistance arises second. What comes first is the idea, the passion, the dream of the work we're so excited to create that it scares us. So the idea comes first, always, and then resistance shows up. He says, but the opposite of resistance, principle number seven, is assistance. And as we engage through our fear, life, or what I like how I would put it, is God will provide what we need to win the battle and to keep moving forward. One of the unique things I think that I learned from Scripture is that God does not give us oftentimes everything we need for the whole journey up front, but he gives us strength as we go. So when you're at step one, you get step for, or you get strength for step one. You don't get strength for step two, three, four, five, and six at step one. You get strength for step two as you take step two. You get strength for step three as you take step three. And so it's strength as we go. It's help as we go. But, but what we tend to do is we wait at step two because we're like, God, I need strength for step eight. I need resources for step eight. I need, and the Lord's like, I'll give it to you, but you got to go to step three and four and five, and I'll meet you in each of those ways. It's a journey of trust encourage. He says also in the belly of the beast, resistance has two tests. And I thought this was really, really helpful. Test number one is what he says, how bad do you want it? That is resistance. First question, how bad do you want it? Am I, am I willing, is this important enough for me that I will put the full energy of my soul towards it? How bad do you want it? And here's test number two. I thought this was so good. Why do you want it? This thing that you're pursuing, why do you want it? And he lists nine reasons. One, for the babes or the dudes. <laughs> Two, the money. Three, for fame. Four, because I deserve it. Five, for power. Six, to prove my old man, ex-spouse, mother, teacher, coach wrong. Seven, to serve my vision of how life mankind ought to be. Eight, for fun or beauty and nine, because I have no choice. And he says this, if you checked eight or nine, you get to stay on the island. If you checked any of the first seven, you can stay too, but you must immediately check yourself in the attitude adjustment 
chamber. And I think our why is so important, right? The, the pursuits of our life, if they're to prove people wrong, because we got a chip on our shoulder, if they're because it's what we think we should do, it's what we think others want us to be, um, those motivations will never really last and get us too far. It's got to be authentic to who we are, to what God created us to want and to be. And, and that is the appropriate motivation. Then he has this whole chapter on the big crash. And I thought this was really helpful. Um, and again, this is kind of as we're in the middle of the work, he says the big crash is so predictable across all fields of enterprises that we can practically set our watches by it. Bank on it. It's going to happen. The worst part of the big crash is nothing can prepare us for it. Why? Because the crash arises organically, spawned by some act of commission or omission that we ourselves took or counterinced back at the project's inception. So he says, at some point, you're going to be in this work and you're going to crash. But that's okay. Every one of us do, right? There's a part of us that thinks, well, if I'm doing what I should be doing, what I've created to, to do, then, you know, the yellow brick road will just arise and I'll dance down it in joy and delight. But he says, no, part of this journey is the ups and downs, is crashing into the wall, but then picking yourself up and becoming something stronger because you still move forward um, in, in a healthy way. He talks about what it looked like for him. He said, my newest book, a novel called The Profession, was done. After two years, I was proud of it. I was psyched. I was sure I had broken through to a level I'd never achieved before. Then I showed it to the people I trusted. And he said, they hated it. Crash. Man, all this work. All the, I thought I was at a new level and they hated it. But he said, here's, here's what's so good about crashes. It says a crash means we failed. We gave it everything we had. We came up short. A crash doesn't mean we're losers. A crash means we have to grow. A crash means we're at the threshold of learning something, which means we're getting better. We're acquiring the wisdom of our craft. A crash compels us to figure out what works, what doesn't work, to understand the difference. We got ourselves into this mess by mistakes we made at the start. How? Were we lazy and attentive? Did we mean well but forget to factor in human nature? Did we assess reality incorrectly? Whatever the cause, the big crash causes us to go back, solve the problems that we either created or set into motion unwittingly at the outset and become better from it. And that is a liberating thought to me. Right, Because sometimes when you hit some crash in some endeavor that is so important to your heart, you think, see, I'm a failure. I knew it all along. I wish I wouldn't have even started. But he said, instead going into self-pity or instead of quitting, learn from the crash. Because what the crash means is you gave it your full potential and it wasn't enough. But now you can learn from that and you can grow your potential even more. And I love that perspective on failure. And I wonder how many of us would be helped to not personalize that failure. Say, well, I crashed, so I'm a failure. But to say, this is part of the growth process. And I'm willing to embrace it and learn from it 
and to get up from this crash, dust myself off, and move forward in a better way. I love John Maxwell. He has a quote. He says, failure is an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Failure is an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Failure does not mean you're a failure. It does not even mean you're incapable. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means we can start again, but with more knowledge, with more experience, with more grit. And to me, that is really, really powerful. And I hope it is to you. Maybe some of us, our problem is we, we've been personalizing our failure and we have talked ourselves out of our potential uh, because of our failures. And really, our failures were not actually failures. They were crashes meant to stretch our potential. So I hope that's freeing to you. And then he talks about the end, the end of the work. He says when Michael Crichton, the guy, if you know him, he wrote Jurassic Park and a lot of sci-fi books that have become movies. But he said when Michael Crichton approached the end of a novel, he used to start getting up early and earlier in the morning. He was desperate to keep his mojo going. He'd get up at 6 and 5 and 3.30, 2.30 till he was driving his wife insane. Finally, he had to move out of the house. He checked into a hotel, worked around the clock till he finished the book. He says Michael Crichton was a pro. He knew that resistance was strongest at the finish. He did what he had to do, no matter how nutty or unorthodox, to finish and be ready to ship. Resistance is strongest at the finish. Keep going until the end. Slay that dragon. Move forward. Keep fighting the battle. And then start the next thing that God is calling you to do. Well, I hope that's helpful to you. I hope it gives you some food for thought. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.